bit of an obstacle race to get to the lectern, isn't it? That's incredible. Yeah, good. Thank you, Earl. Thank you very much. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here and see lots of new people I haven't seen before, which is, is fantastic. Can I just pause at the beginning to say thank you so much for all of you for your prayers for Nita, my wife. Two weeks ago, she was operated on both her feet. She was down to have an operation on her right foot, but the surgeon, who's the top guy who does all the footballers, agreed to do her left foot as well. So both her feet have been uh, invaded. This is the fifth operation she's had on the feet. So thank you so much for your prayers, uh, for meals, for flowers, for cards. It's just uh, a wonderful um, example of what it means to belong to a church family, and we're really grateful to you uh, and for your support. And uh, we're just praying this will be a long-term solution. She's obviously in quite a lot of pain at the moment on strong painkillers, but we hope she'll get through that period and be a bit more mobile. Uh, I don't think she'll be back playing football, but she's looking forward to (laughs) being more, more mobility. In truth, there was only one Christian, and he was crucified. So wrote Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher who lived in the second half of the 19th century. He was the son, actually, of a Christian pastor. And he went up to seminary to train to be a minister himself, winning prizes for his preaching and for his devotional essays. But he came to reject everything, became one of the most passionate atheists of all time, coining another famous phrase, God is dead. Nietzsche came to hate Christianity and its assertion that salvation is attained through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Instead, he claimed that Jesus did not die to save mankind, but rather to show mankind how one ought to live. Hence his assertion, there was only one Christian and he was crucified. So you may ask, how did Nietzsche account for the incredible growth of the Christian church and its message, which was a message of salvation through Jesus? Nietzsche laid the blame firmly at the door of one man, Paul. Paul, the one whose exploits in spreading the Christian message over a 25-year period, extending his message and the growth of churches throughout the Roman Empire right up to the city of Rome itself. We've been studying this in the book of Acts, if you've been with us in Hope City. And then you've got his 13 letters in the New Testament, outlining, defending the Christian message. They make up about 30% of the New Testament, this second half of the book that we call the Bible. In one of the earliest of these letters, written to Christians in the Roman province of Galatia, which we've just begun to study, as Carolyn reminded us, we discover, in fact, that Paul faced similar challenges to those which Nietzsche and many others have subsequently raised about his message and its origin. If you were with us last week, we saw, if you've got a Bible in front of you and there are Bibles around, it really is helpful to open a Bible and follow, not least to make sure that what I'm saying is what the Bible says and not what I say. So if you've got one of the Bibles in front of you, it's page 1169, and we're into chapter 1 of uh, Galatians. And if you look at the opening verse, 
It reads, Paul, an apostle sent from men, not by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He states his credentials right at the beginning. I'm an apostle. We'll see more about this later. He then immediately launches into an impassioned appeal to the Galatian Christians who are in danger of abandoning what he calls the gospel, the good news, which he had preached to them. They've abandoned it, he says, for another message which others had brought to them. Another gospel which he claims is no gospel at all. He challenges them instead to continue in grace. That is trusting alone. Grace means trusting alone in Christ for everything, not anything we can do to gain favor with God. But this raised a question for Paul's critics. Where did he get this message about grace and trusting in Christ as Savior alone? What's the origin of his message? Well, he then turns to that in the second part of chapter 1, which we're going to look at today. Where did Paul get his message? It's Galatians 1, 11 to 24, and David Munch is going to read for us. So you might like to follow along, and then we'll turn to it together. Galatians 1, 11 to 24. I think Thanks, David. Are you going to read from here? Okay, to me. Let me just take... I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Thank you, David. So this is, you may ask, where did Paul get his message from? Is that important? It is vitally important. It's a matter of life and death, eternal life and death for each of us personally. It's a matter of great importance for this church in Hope City. For it's the same message which Paul preached, which we preach, and this is why we're studying the book of Galatians. So where did Paul get this message he was preaching from. It wasn't a product of his own brilliant mind, brilliant though he was. It wasn't the result that he heard some great preacher and was moved. 
and believed. It wasn't that he studied intensely some great teacher. Rather, he says, look again at the verse, it was revealed directly to him by Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. He says it was totally unexpected, totally unsought, wholly unlikely. Something that was revealed to him. Now, the word used here for reveal in the original, the Bible was originally written in Greek. So let me give you a Greek word, which is a word that you'll know because it's been transferred into English. He said it was revealed by apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse, which means a startling... For most people, it means a startling event, usually something pretty traumatic. But in actual fact, it simply means to reveal something that is hidden. Let me give you a good example. Over the years, I've conducted many weddings. And many of you, most of you have been to weddings or have been married. So are married. So here's the wedding scene. Okay, imagine it. You know, the music starts up and the, the bride comes in on the arm of her father up to the front where I'm conducting the service and joins the, bri- uh, the bridegroom who she's going to marry. She has this beautiful dress on, and normally she has a veil over her face. We conduct the service, they make their vows, they exchange their rings, and then magic moment, I then say, you may now kiss the bride. And the bridegroom reaches over, and he pulls off the veil, revealing her face, and that is an apocalypse. Revealing something that is hidden. And Paul says this is what happened to him. Just a sudden moment, a veil was removed and he saw who Jesus was. We'll talk about it in a moment. Um, But he talks then about his life before that point and after that point. He says, up to this particular point in time, I was going this particular way. And then this unveiling happened. And my life was completely transformed. Uh, I've recently read a really good book, and I want to recommend it to you. Uh, it's written by a guy called Gavin Peacock. If you're a football fan you'll, and you're my age, you'll remember Gavin Peacock playing for Newcastle and Chelsea. Um, he's written a book called From Pitch to Pulpit. And it's got rave reviews. Glenn Huddle, the former, I'm talking football here, and my wife says you should cut out the football illustrations. But anyway, stay with me just today. Okay. Glenn Hoddle says, what a fabulous book, a must-read for all, not just football fans, loved it, okay? So Gavin is now a pastor of a church in Canada, and he talks about the transition from being a star footballer, a BBC pundit on Match of the Day on Saturday evenings and other places, and he's now changed direction. He's now pastoring a church. I'm going to put that out of the way somewhere. I might come back to it later on. Now, remarkable though that transition is from pitch to pulpit, the transition of Paul is even more remarkable. If you want a title, you might head it, Amazing Grace from Persecutor to Preacher, which also begins with P's, which preachers love this kind of thing. Persecutor (laughs) to Preacher. Stay with me, all right? So um, everybody was astonished at the transformation of this man, Paul. Not least the Christians who actually said the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So look at what he writes about his previous life. From persecutor 
before the moment of revelation, he was a vehement opponent of the church of Jesus Christ. That is, the church is the followers of Jesus. Another building that didn't have any church buildings in those days. Church means people who follow Jesus. You, you can read this story in the book of Acts, which, as I said, we've been studying previously in Hope City. Um, we first encounter Paul, or to give him his Hebrew name, Saul, from a place called Tarsus, uh, in the book of Acts in chapter 9. Um, we meet him with the story of a Christian named Stephen, who was stoned to death by an angry group of religious leaders outside Jerusalem. And Luke, the author of Acts, says, and a young man was there named Saul, who was guarding the cloaks of the stone throwers. That's the first time we meet him. No doubt, Saul Paul heard the impassioned and reasoned defense of Stephen's faith in Jesus. He saw how he died with forgiveness on his lips. As he said, I see heaven opened and Jesus waiting to greet me. Luke writes that those who witnessed the event saw that Stephen's face was like that of an angel. But Saul didn't see an angel. He saw a religious heretic who deserved to die. There are examples of people who are martyred for their faith and that persecutors, even Roman gods in early church history, who become Christians as a result. Not, not Paul. He wasn't moved at all. The next verse after the stoning of Stephen records, uh, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. There was nothing half-hearted in his desire to eradicate the church, the followers of Jesus. Notice again what he says in verse 13. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely, the word intensely there means violently, without mercy, I persecuted the church of Christ and tried to destroy it. The word translated destroy there is a word the Greeks used of invaders sacking a city, scorched earth policy. That was my Policy towards Christians. When they came on trial, he voted for their execution. And the reason he tells us he did this was because of his fanatical devotion to the Jewish faith. He was, by training, a Pharisee. That was a member of the most strict religious group among the people of Israel. They observed the law of Moses given hundreds of years before. In great detail, and not only Paul says, was I a Pharisee, I was the best of Pharisees. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people. I was extremely zealous. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. It was because he was so zealous, or jealous, the word is the same word, depending on how you use it, for the honor of God that he was determined to wipe out the deluded followers of a man who had been executed as a common criminal by the most shameful means of crucifixion. This was Paul, the persecutor. One writer, John Stock, comments, Such was the state of Paul at Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. He was a bigot and a fanatic, wholehearted in his devotion to Judaism and his persecution of Christ and his church. Now, a man in that mental and emotional state is in no mood to change his mind or even to have it changed for him by men. No condition reflex or other psychological device could convert a man in that state. Only God could reach him. And God did. 
The story of how that happened is recorded in Acts 9. Paul tells his story in two other places, if you're interested, in Acts 22, before a hostile mob in Jerusalem, and again before a king and his entourage in Acts 26. So here's the story. Approaching the city of Damascus at noon to arrest more Christians, he was stopped in his tracks. There was a blinding light from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and a voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. It was a life-changing, mind-blowing experience. If you're following the text in Galatians, the previous section is all about me. I did this, I did that, I did this, and then suddenly he changes and he says, but God, but God, a radical transformation shift from persecutor to preacher. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. So Paul's message of grace, that simply means, let me repeat again, it means nothing we have done to earn our salvation, was absolutely true for him. There was nothing he'd done. He believed just the opposite, that you found favor with God by doing good things and keeping God's law. And if anybody was going to get through a pass mark, it was him. What changed his mind was God's grace. He says he was chosen by God's grace, set apart from his mother's womb. He hadn't done anything when he was in his mother's womb. He was called by God. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. He did nothing to merit this. God was simply pleased to step into his life. On the road to Damascus, he was literally blinded by the light, physically blinded. But the first time, he could see who Jesus was. It's like the wedding. Go back to the wedding scene. It was as though a veil had been removed and he could see who Jesus was. It was a personal, life-changing experience. And what was revealed to Paul, the risen, glorious Jesus, was then revealed through Paul as he was commissioned to preach Christ among the Gentiles, the non-Jews. That's the word Gentiles simply means non-Jews. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. One writer says, so we can say that God revealed Christ to Paul so that he could reveal Christ through Paul. Paul gives more details about what the risen Jesus said to him when sharing his story, that one in Acts 26, before a king in his court. Listen what he says. This is what Jesus said. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them. Why? To do the same thing that happened to you. To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me. In another of his letters written to the Christians in Corinth, he writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Genesis, the first book in the Bible, says there was darkness over everything and God said, let there be light. And in a moment, there was light. And he says, this same God still shines his light into the darkness of our hearts, human hearts, 
to reveal to us who Jesus is as he did to Paul on that life-changing moment on the road to Damascus. So let me just pause for a moment and ask you a personal question if I can. What about you? Are you still in the dark? Have you seen who Jesus is? If so, then like Paul, you have a story to share. Your story may not be as dramatic as that of Paul, but every encounter with Jesus is a story to share, a story of God's grace. Paul's aim in sharing his story is not to promote or defend himself, but to defend the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace that turned him from persecutor to preacher. In a really helpful book on Galatians, if you're following the series with it, it's worth getting a copy. I think we've got a few. Matt's nodding his head. We have a few copies in the library. Last door on the left if you want to borrow one. He says, Paul is a good example to us here. He shows that we must have the courage to be vulnerable and speak personally about what the gospel means to us. If we leave out our testimony, it also gives an incomplete picture of how complete Christian fulfillment is. Christ not only appeals to our minds, he fills our hearts. And if you're part of Hope City, and we're going to be reminded of it next week, our challenge is bless. Begin with prayer, listen with care, eat with our friends, serve with love, share your story. Look for ways in which you can share the story of how Jesus is transforming your life and the life of the world. And your ultimate goal is not to promote yourself. Like Paul, it's so that people praise God when they hear, praise God because of me, what God has done in your life. Now, back to his question. Where did he get his message from? Paul says, Paul, he says, it was simply a revelation from Jesus Christ. And so he says, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Look again at the verse, uh, verses 15 and 16. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. He didn't go up to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles or anyone else about the message he'd received. He immediately began to preach about Jesus, if you read the book of Acts, in Damascus. And then after that, he tells us, and it's kind of a bit mysterious, he went off to Arabia for three years, perhaps to preach, but more importantly, to think through this life-changing encounter. What did it mean to him with all his Jewish knowledge and background of the Hebrew Scriptures? Some have suggested this three years was like the three years that the 12 apostles spent with Jesus, a kind of compensation for Paul, the apostle. And then he recounts, after this three-year period, he finally went up to Jerusalem and stayed with Peter, Cephas, and met James, the brother of Jesus, who was now a leader in the church. You can read a summary of this again in Acts chapter 9. Then after this 15-day visit, he went, he was actually sent off to Syria and Cilicia, that was the province where he came from. We do know that he preached extensively, for, it's not in the book of Acts, for about 10 years. If you want some details of the story, and you're now reading it this week, in 2 Corinthians 11, you can read about some of the experiences he had that aren't recorded in the book of Acts. So Paul answers our question. Where did he get his message from? Not from any human being. Not even the apostles, but from a personal revelation from Jesus himself. And in the next part of our letter, we're going to see next in a couple of weeks. It was only after 14 years that he finally went to Jerusalem. And the apostles confirmed the message he preached was just the same as the one they'd received from Jesus. 
Paul's aim, and he takes this so seriously, is to record in detail his experience. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. What he's saying is that Paul's gospel, my gospel, is the genuine, only true gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, received by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. John Stock comments very helpfully. He says, are we to accept Paul's account of the origin of his message, supported as it is by historical evidence, if Paul was right in asserting that his gospel was not man's but God's, then to reject Paul is to reject God. To reject Paul is to reject God. But to accept Paul is to accept God. To accept God's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. And that is the proof of the gospel, not just the historical evidence, but the personal experience of God's grace. Not many of us, in fact, none of us will have such a dramatic encounter with Jesus as occurred to Saul on the road to Damascus. But we can experience today that same grace that reaches us, saves us, transforms us. Back to Gavin, who I met a few years ago when he was visiting Nidri Community Church. That's a great guy. Gavin, if you read the story, and I have one or two spare copies, so if you'd like a copy, I'd be happy to give it to you on condition that you read it and pass it on to someone else, okay? Uh, See me afterwards. Um, Gavin came to know Jesus in his late teens, about the age of 18, when he was just starting out as a professional footballer. And his faith in Jesus, he he went straight back to the team he was playing for and told the whole team what had happened to him he said he got a mixed reaction but people learned to respect him as they saw his faith deepen and grow and in the final chapter of his book he writes so this book is as i said from the start a memorial a story of an ordinary man which takes you all the way from the pitch to the pulpit but i hope you now see it is ultimately a memorial of god's grace And he goes on to write, let me read, I hope that you, the reader, see that there is more to life than football, fame, and fortune. There is another glory for you to see. A greater glory, that's the title of the book, a greater glory. It is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is the beauty that is found in the love of God through the Son of God who died and rose so you may live, trusting in him for salvation spending your life in his service, then you will know that you live for something that can never, ever be taken away. So, in conclusion, let me ask you, have you experienced God's grace? Are you continuing God's grace? But have you experienced it for the first time? Let me give you an opportunity to do that. Now I'm going to pray. If you'd like to respond to God's grace, you can say this prayer in your own head after me. As you turn from your old way of life where you've been living for yourself, the Bible calls this technical words, repenting from your sin, and turn to God and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Tim Keller writes, final quote, final quote, no one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel, nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. Think about that for a moment. Then I'm going to pray, and if you'd like to pray, to respond. Let's pray.
Here's the prayer. Lord God, thank you that in your love you sent your son Jesus to be the saviour of the world and my saviour. I want to turn from living my life my way. I want to say sorry for that. And I want to turn to you and put my faith in Jesus, your son, who died for my sin and was raised from the grave. Please come and live within me by your spirit. And may I experience today and for the rest of my life your grace, which reaches even me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have experienced God's grace, the other response is something to celebrate. So if the musicians like to come up, I'm just going to say a few words about a very familiar hymn we're going to sing at the conclusion. It's written by a man like Paul who had a dramatic experience, a dramatic conversion. It's written by a man called John Newton. He was born in 1725, a long time ago. He was the son of a very wealthy family, and he just turned away from everything and began to live a totally dissolute life, a life of debauchery. He ended up in the slave trade on a slave ship. In fact, eventually, he ended up becoming enslaved himself. His father back in England didn't know what had happened to him. He commissioned a ship, and the ship went out and spent 18 months looking for him and finally discovered him in terrible misery and rescued him and brought him back. And halfway on the journey back, it's a wonderful story, you can read it for yourself, halfway back crossing the Atlantic, there was an incredibly violent storm. He was down below and he tells the story of how he and another shipmate tried to get up to the top deck before they were swamped. And as they climbed up the steps, the man in front of him immediately was just swept off into the sea and never seen again. And Newton said at that point, he cried out to God to save him. And amazingly, God saved him, not just from the storm, but from his old way of life. And he became not just a Christian, he became a minister (coughs) of the gospel of Jesus. You can see his grave in London. Here's what he wrote himself for his epitaph on his grave. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long laboured to destroy. He wrote many hymns about his experience. The best known, people sing it without even thinking about what it means, but think about Newton's story and why he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. If you'd experience that grace, let's celebrate it together. Are we good to celebrate, John? Thank you very much. Let's go for it.